From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. He will take a tortilla and he will serve Persian food or Armenian food or we had turmeric with chicken the other day with him. He says, is it authentic Mexican food? Absolutely not, but it's authentic to me. On today's show, we explore Mexican cuisine in the United States, from a childhood food memory to the taco trucks of Los Angeles and right here in Indiana. We hear from Sarah Portnoy, who teaches Latino food studies in Southern California, and we talk with Pilar Gonzalez about what drove her to take her Pueblo-style tacos to the streets of Bloomington. That's all coming up in the next half hour, so stay with us. We'll start with some food news with Renee Reed. Greetings, Renee. Hi, Kate. If you're planning to travel to China, be sure to bring your reusable bags. Chinese consumers generally generate less plastic waste per capita than Americans. However, nearly three-quarters of China's plastic waste ends up in landfills or out in the open, which is driving the Chinese government to announce a ban on single-use plastics nationwide by 2025. The new guidelines also include a ban on the import of plastic waste and on the use of non-biodegradable plastic bags in major cities by the end of 2020. While past efforts to ban plastic bags in China have failed, the government says they will tackle the problem systematically this time around by also ramping up recycling efforts and promoting green packaging and express delivery. The government also says it would consider blacklisting companies that don't follow the bans. New York and California are the only U.S. states so far with similar single-use plastic bans. Fresh fruits and vegetables are on the chopping block for the school lunch program once again. Last Friday, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue announced a new proposal to lift restrictions on school lunches that would give what he called, quote, common-sense flexibility to school districts when they make school menus. Purdue said the move would reduce food waste from items kids throw away, saying school districts have asked for more leeway in their menus. The recent rollback marks the second assault on school lunch restrictions in the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010, the flagship initiative from former First Lady Michelle Obama. As it happens, the rollback was announced on her birthday. Claims of food waste were shot down in a U.S. Department of Agriculture study last year. The research compared data from school years before and after the Obama school lunch rules and found there was no significant increase in cost or food waste. The research also found that after the program launched, students did consume more whole grains, greens and beans, as well as less sugar, solid fats, and sodium. Under current rules, high-energy, low-nutrition foods like pizza, hamburgers, french fries, and cookies can appear on school menus one day of the week but the menu has to meet the overall weekly restrictions on calories and saturated fat. The new proposal would allow more of those items served a la carte throughout the week, a provision critics call a junk food loophole. The new rules would also lift requirements for fruit on breakfast trays, from one cup to half a cup, 
pastries and granola bars would be allowed to make up the difference in calories. The school lunch program gives a nutrition boost to kids from low-income families. Children who rely on school meals get up to 40% of their daily intake of vegetables from the lunch tray. Attorneys General from seven states and the District of Columbia filed a lawsuit in April last year against the previous round of rollbacks, saying the changes lacked any basis in nutritional research and passed without input from the public. Thanks to Taylor Killo and Chad Bouchard for those stories. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. I read a piece in Grist recently about San Bernardino, California. It's a sprawling city about an hour inland from Los Angeles. The area is also known as the Inland Empire. It's where I was born. I don't have a lot of great things to say about it. I've always been apologetic and dismissive when I tell people where I'm from. In recent years, the city has suffered a notorious mass shooting, corrupt city officials, bankruptcy, and has been named at various times the poorest city of its size in California, as well as the most dangerous city in California. San Bernardino County has the nation's worst ozone pollution. The Grist article was about local activists fighting against air pollution and the growing number of large-scale distribution centers and warehouses located in San Bernardino. They bring increased rail and semi-truck pollution, and the low air quality is affecting the health of the residents. Part of its problem is geography. The San Bernardino mountain range borders the city's eastern edge, so all the pollution from LA and the ports blows in from the coast and then gets trapped by those mountains. So all the smog seems to collect and settle over the city. At least, that's how I've always understood it. You can actually see it in the mornings, on the way down from the mountains. We witnessed it this summer when I brought my family to visit my old stomping ground. We stayed in a cute A-frame Airbnb up in Sky Forest. And on that steep, windy mountain road, we marveled at the beautiful fog settling in the valley, like we were descending into a cloud. Then we realized it was smog. It was brown and thick and not dissipating. Down in the valley, It was almost as if it were overcast. My strongest food memory from my California days is the Mexican-American restaurants we'd go to when I was a kid. Picture dark wood paneling, black vinyl booths, and bumpy red glass globes on each table with candles clutched in white plastic netting. Mexico. The Mexico Cafe. The air is thick with the aroma of corn tortilla chips under a heat lamp. It's the home of the combo plate. I remember going to places like this with my dad up in the mountains, or in San Bernardino. When my parents divorced, my mom would take my brother and me out almost every Friday on payday to a place called the Mexico Cafe. More than 30 years later, I find the place still standing on Highland Avenue. It was our very first stop upon arriving in San Bernardino. I brought my recorder in with me when we headed in for lunch. 
The exterior and signage are familiar, but the interior has had at least one overhaul in the decades since my last meal at the Mexico. It's no longer dark and intimate. The red candles are gone. But the food promises to deliver on the nostalgia front. Ah, here we go. You can get combination plates. Cheese enchilada, chili relleno, and chicken or beef tacos. Yeah, that's looking right. Yeah, I'll probably go ahead and go for the cheese enchiladas. Ah, the warm chips have just come to the table. And there's some salsa. Yes, the food takes me back. But not any more than a hot combo plate at Mexican Villa in Springfield, Missouri would, or cheese enchiladas from El Ranchero here in Bloomington. It occurs to me, finally, after traveling all those miles in search of a childhood memory, that it is the food, the aromas and flavors of fried corn under a heat lamp, saucy refried beans merging with tomato-tinted rice on a hot diner plate, that's what brings me back. That's how food memories work. The taste transports me to the darkened room with the oil on velvet paintings and the red candle glow. Those Friday night payday meals for a single mom and her kids. The food is what takes me there. Because the place itself is long gone. Mexican cuisine in Southern California has changed so much since I lived there as a kid. I had some phenomenal fish tacos a few days later in San Clemente, for instance. Our next guest has been studying and teaching about Mexican street food and taco trucks in Los Angeles in more recent years. We'll hear from her after a short break. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. In the winter months, the food truck scene slows down here in Bloomington. We don't have food truck Fridays, but you'll still see a few scattered around downtown and on campus. 
there is something appealing about a truck serving hot food on a cold evening. In Los Angeles, the climate allows for year-round street food, but that doesn't mean there are no barriers for food trucks and push carts. Our guest today knows a lot about street vendors in LA. Professor Sarah Portnoy is the author of Food, Health, and Culture in Latino Los Angeles, and she teaches courses in Latino food culture and Latino food justice in the Spanish language department at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Maddie Chera of the IU Food Institute interviewed her when she came to Bloomington to give a talk. Students in Dr. Portnoy's classes look at the lack of access to healthy, affordable, culturally appropriate foods in low-income Latino neighborhoods. They study the role that food trucks and street vendors play in Latino food culture, and Portnoy takes students out to sample dishes from local food trucks and to talk with the vendors. One topic that comes up in Portnoy's own work and in her classes is authenticity. Maddie Chera wanted to hear more about that. So do you find that the different people in the community that you and your students work with have different ideas about authenticity and appropriation when it comes to food? For sure. We, for example, we just went to the food truck of a really well-known chef. He's got a truck called Guerrilla Tacos, and he's about to open a uh, brick-and-mortar restaurant. And he will take a wonderful corn tortilla, but he will take a tortilla and he will serve a... Persian food or Armenian food or he wouldn't call it that kind of food, but those, those flavors, those spices on it. You know, we're always we had turmeric with chicken the other day with him and we're trying to guess what is this? What? And he says, is it authentic Mexican food? Absolutely not. But it's authentic to me. That really was interesting or provocative for the students. But not everyone holds such a relaxed view of what counts as authentic Mexican cuisine. In fact, the first speaker I that I ever bring in for the semester. His name is Bill Esparza, and he wrote this book, El Mexicano, and he was really to bring out a lot of the uh, food truck owners to, to give them a place on the culinary landscape, the culinary map of Los Angeles. He's gone down to Tijuana and Baja and brought those uh, chefs, uh, taqueros, to Los Angeles. He curated this enormous taco festival that we had for many years. So he's put a lot of people on the map who would definitely have been in the margins Otherwise, I always bring him as the first speaker, and he has this very traditional view of what can be Mexican food and what is not, and that it's got to be the more hyper-regional it is, the better. You know, anything that smacks of a combo plate, not that's not Mexican food. Uh, and when I listen to him, I want to agree with him. And then I always bring in, or I try to bring in, uh, Gustavo Rellano, who wrote the Taco USA book, who has this very breakdown borders, anything is acceptable, anything that's made by a Mexican is Mexican food. Taco Bell, it might be crap, but it's Mexican food. And so I feel like I fit after a certain point of listening to them both for many years somewhere in between. So it's really interesting for my students because they get to hear these two polar opposite views throughout the semester and we discuss the different perspectives on authenticity and how you define national cuisine or even regional cuisine and so on and 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 borders and borrowing and all of those topics that go along with the, the discussion of food studies what it comes down to is this defining regional authenticity is complicated can you define one american cuisine what is american cuisine well there's a certain kind of food you'll find in the south new england has another food California, we're all about everything being healthy and fresh and vegetables. Uh, 
Uh, if you go to New Orleans, you're going to get Cajun cuisine. So you can't really define one American cuisine in the same way you cannot define a Mexican cuisine. There, every region has its own uh, specialties, its own cuisine, and you know there's great variation, particularly from northern to southern Mexico. In northern Mexico, they eat flour, flour tortillas. You're not going to find that in the south. Uh, they eat a lot more beef in the north. Uh, Oaxaca is known as the land of the seven moles, but they have a million different kind of moles, uh, which are these sauces that some of them use, chocolate, nuts, a variety of uh, spices, chiles, and so on. And every uh, area will have their own mole that they're known for. Um, so, yeah, you can't define one Mexican cuisine. Interestingly, what got me, what part of what triggered my quest to work on this uh, area of Latino food studies in LA is I was listening to our local NPR show on food. It's called Good Food. And every week they have a discussion between Evan Kleinman, who's the host, and Jonathan Gold, who's our Pulitzer Prize winning food journalist. And somebody called in and asked uh, Jonathan if he would consider Tito's Tacos to be authentic Mexican food. So what is Tito's Tacos? It's one of those old school Mexican-American places that sells the hard shell taco with ground beef, um, cheddar cheese, the shredded lettuce, your dollop of sour cream, all of that stuff that I would say is not Mexican food, <laughs> right? So somebody asked him that. I pulled over the car so I could listen closely. And he said, yeah, it's Mexican food because Southern California is a region of Mexico unto itself. Hey, it was part of Spain. Then it was part of Mexico, right? The border crossed it. It was part of Mexico before it became part of the United States in 1850. So it's got a long history of Mexican cuisine, primarily originally from northern Mexico. Uh, but it, we also have the second largest population of Mexicans anywhere outside of Mexico City, reportedly. Uh, so, of course, we have our own variations and dishes that are unique to Southern California. One of the big issues that Dr. Portnoy has been keeping up with is the regulation and rights of the food street vendors in Los Angeles. So the street vendors have been illegal since 1980. They were, they were banned in, the, in Los Angeles. They're the, Los Angeles is the only major city of the 10 biggest cities in the U.S. where street vending is illegal. And yet we have over 50,000 street vendors in the city 10 to 12,000 of whom sell food. Uh, they live in the state of fear and anxiety, that they're going to have to run at any minute, that the police are going to ticket them, uh, that they're going to lose their merchandise, and so on. But yet they're everywhere. They're not just in low-income Latino neighborhoods. They're in middle-class neighborhoods. They're close to upper-middle-class neighborhoods. Uh, the neighborhood where I live is really close to where a lot of the Oaxacans live. Oaxaca is a region of southern Mexico that is one of the poorest, and it's primarily indigenous. And it's said that we have somewhere between 80 and 200,000 Oaxacans that live in Los Angeles or southern California. It's hard to know for sure because most of them are undocumented. Uh, and so as a result, there's plenty of street food just right around me. Uh, you find people who set up these carts selling tacos al pastor, which is... Uh, the pork on the spit that rotates, and they get the meat gets sliced thinly, served with a pineapple, slice of pineapple on the tortilla. That's taco al pastor for a dollar, dollar fifty. That's street food right in my neighborhood. Fruit carts, they're fruit carts that dot the uh, landscape of the city all around the place. Uh, anywhere you see an umbrella colored, a rainbow colored umbrella, 
Uh, that's a street vendor selling sliced fruit. Very traditional Mexican. You get a traste, you get a container filled with chile and, or, you know, sprinkled chile and, and, and lime onto your sliced fruit, and that's as good as it gets for a big bag for, let's say, $4. They have been illegal for a long time. They've been around since L.A. ever existed, uh, but they've really been fighting hard for legalization over the past few years. And an ordinance was submitted to city council. City council voted January, at the very beginning of February 2017, to decriminalize street vending in the city of Los Angeles. So it was no longer a criminal act, but it was also still not technically legal because they hadn't figured out the terms of the ordinance that they want to pass to make it legal. So that's the legal limbo that we're still in 15 months later. You can read more about L.A.'s taco truck wars in Sarah Portnoy's book, Food, Health, and Culture in Latino Los Angeles. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. That was Sarah Portnoy, a professor in Spanish language at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She was interviewed by Maddie Chera, who currently teaches cultural anthropology at Indiana University in South Bend and the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. We have links to their work on our website, eartheats.org. Here in Bloomington, food truck culture has really taken off over the past few years. The city of Bloomington first established food truck guidelines in 2015. One World Enterprises opened a new facility to house their kitchen share program in 2016. The combination of those two events really opened the doors to those ready to try their hand at making and selling food on the street. The Kitchen Share offers new small-scale food businesses like food trucks the chance to get started without making a huge investment in commercial kitchen space. They rent the space they need by the hour, and One World is completely equipped to support the specific needs of food truck businesses, including parking spaces with electrical service and approved water facilities for food trucks. Pilar Gonzalez took advantage of these services when she decided to open a food truck. For her, a couple of other factors played into the decision. One, she'd been staying home caring for her daughters since they were babies, and she was ready to try something new. So I want to go back work, and my husband don't want it. So I say, okay, take choice. I go to work, or we need to do some business, because I don't like to stay in home all day. I don't want my kids seeing me in home all day. They girls and they need to be strong and and I had ideas what she need to do. The other motivation was culinary. They were craving the tacos they loved, the flavors they remembered from Puebla where they're from in southern Mexico, and even from the taco stands in New York where Pilar's husband lived for many years. They weren't finding these kinds of tacos in Bloomington. When he moved here, say, What is the tacos? I say, I'm sorry, he did no tacos. <laughs> No, no, any tacos on the night. Okay, I miss the tacos. To be clear, they were finding tacos in town, just not the kind of tacos they were looking for. Because we want more authentic. He say, no, it's not really tacos. We need more authentic tacos. I say, eh? yes. The first they put um, cheese and lettuce, tomato. And it's not like that. We eat tacos like cilantro, onions, and lime, cucumber, and you salsa. So they got the idea to open their own taco truck. That would be their business. 
and they would make their tacos Puebla style with cilantro, cucumber, and lime, and many choices of meats. We don't buy any meat prep. We buy the meat, raw meat, like big blocks of meat. We clean it, we slice it, we marinate, and we make portions. Longaniza, asada, pastor, árabe, tripa, lengua. Ah, too many. <laughs> Tacos aren't the only thing you'll find on the truck. They also serve chalupas, tostados, tortas, and a quesadilla cut like a pizza, playfully called the gringa. The food truck lifestyle hasn't exactly been easy on Pilar and her family. Everyone's involved, and they share some time together working. Her daughters get to help out sometimes on Saturdays. But it also means a lot of late nights for Pilar. In the morning Wednesday, I start open 11 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning. And Friday and Saturday, we stay in the street almost 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30. Because later, when we close the window, we start to clean everything on the car. Because next day we open early. And also Saturday, I know we don't open Sunday. But I had time, I want time with my family. So we need to clean. While she says she's happy about running the food truck, she talked about what's hardest for her. Balance, family and job. <laughs> family and work. Yeah. Sometimes my husband saying, when you on the truck, you forget everything. And yes, sometimes I do. Because I love this. Yeah. But sometimes when I out the car, start thinking about the family. Oh my God, they need me. Mm-hmm. The balance. One of the things Pilar likes most about this work is the relationship she's built with customers. We had a lot customer come in. They come in and talk to me and talk to the guys. And like more friendly. I like to be like that because sometimes they feel more comfort. Definitely. And sometimes they say, Pilar, Give me whatever you want. I'm so hungry. I say, are you sure? I know you, you, you choice good. I say, okay, make something, make this, make that. And later they come in, oh, really good, Pilar, thank you. Thank you, no, thank you guys for coming. You know you have a good relationship with your customers when they trust you to choose the food they're going to eat. Thanks to producer Alex Chambers for talking with Pilar about her taco truck, Pili's Party Tacos, which can be found around town year-round. And since this recording was made, Pilar has opened a brick-and-mortar shop called Pili's Party Deli, located at 109 South Walnut in Bloomington. Find out more on our website, eartheats.org. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Sarah Portnoy, Maddie Chera, Alex Chambers, and Pilar Gonzalez. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance. 
offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.